Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Well, CRM, those three little initials are some that are probably recognized by just about any financial institution out there. I don't know that I can think of one who uh, either hasn't recently done a CRM project, currently working on one or evaluating one. Uh, and yet it's it's a uh, a tool or a process that I think is often misunderstood. So Joe Wellyu is the CEO and founder of Total Expert, which is a CRM. Uh, but we're going to kind of go deeper than that. Joe, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank, thanks for having me, man. Really great to be here. Glad to have you back. You were on with Jason last fall, and yeah. you had a great conversation about um, really focusing on customer success and customer journey. And I'd like to pick up on that conversation because, you know, if if there's a, a term, um, you know, maybe less um, hackneyed than CRM uh, or, yeah. or more so, it's cross-sell. Um, th- yeah. This idea, right? Every institution is trying to cross-sell, hey, our customers have X number of products with us and we'd love it if it was Y number. Um, and so let's just go push some more products to them. Um, and not only can that go horribly wrong, see uh, Hor- Wells Fargo. Horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but but even if it's not jamming products, it's still kind of an ugly customer experience to just say, hey, you bought a product from us and now here's a bunch of others that we think you might like. So can we unpack that a little bit today? Talk a little bit yeah. about how do we use tools like CRM to really build deeper relationships with our customers, retain those customers, and sell the right products uh, for the right yeah. reasons at the right time because it's really solving another customer need? Because at the end of the day, that's really what customer experience is all about, isn't it? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And really, you know, we we oftentimes talk about the fact that CRM is really somewhat of an outdated word in, in terms of the way that the CRM products were, were initially invented to, to really track things in terms of progress. And now to, today, um, particularly uh, in, in banking and lending, really your CRM, your customer engagement platforms, your marketing platforms, all of those things really need to work together to get a really deep understanding of each of your customer relationships and then help you take action on those things, right? So it's it's uh, things have evolved so much uh, from a technology perspective, but uh, the conversation that we we started to have really around cross selling and um, you know that word I, I don't really like that word either. I think about the vision for so many of the organizations that we partner with and just uh, colleagues and people that I talk with is look we we want to deliver the perfect customer journey so that we can have a lifelong relationship with every customer. And the perfect customer journey should really mean uh, we're helping them accomplish their financial goals, their financial needs, their those milestones, those important life milestones, right? So you really want to approach it from that perspective, kind of that human first perspective, not product first, if that makes sense. 
Well, it absolutely makes sense. And I agree with that. I think one of the reasons both of those terms are so often misused is because a lot of institutions think about it internal first. Um, they do. Right? They think about, they think product first, not human first, right? Right. Yeah. Product first. And, you know, what we want out of a customer relationship is what we want out of the customer relationship, right? Totally. How, how, how much profitability can we, can we get from that? How many more products can we sell? And, uh, and, and I, Take also uh, your other point that multiple systems really have to be able to work together. So it's not just a repository of who are the customers and you know what are the contact information and what are the products that they have with us. It's really understanding that journey in as close to real time as we can get it, right? Because things change. Right. Right. Well, it's 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 really going a, a click deeper than than that. Even it's it's really about as you're bringing that data together and you're looking at a customer as, uh, and I believe there's, there's levels of maturity here, right? In terms of being able to look at a truly a customer 360 view, but as you're bringing data together, then it really becomes about what are the insights that I can get from my, my data that I have on my customer, what the customers told me, um, any above board third-party sources that help really enhance, um, my my view of that customer and so then it's taking those insights and then using those insights to alter how you communicate and engage with that customer not not only on the channels but also about what you're talking to them about right you talked about that path before right data to insights to action which leads to the outcomes and to your earlier point it's understanding what you even want those outcomes to be right not just capturing any data and you know, gleaning any kind of insight and pushing any kind of action. It's its really beginning with what is a good outcome for that customer. So what's a good example of uh, uh, an institution that you've seen have, that have done that well? Yeah. So we've got, you know, we've got some really great partners, uh, customer partners of ours that are, that are doing some really cool things. And, and um, a good example would be um, we're working with actually a handful of organizations that uh, are looking at all of the customer data, and I'll give you some examples um, on a on a lending side of things. Uh, they they look at first of all um, these these this organization does a lot of consumer business, so they have a mortgage team, they have consumer finance teams, right? And so they're looking at the the homeowner, um, the mortgage uh, product. They're looking at the homeowner. Uh, that has has a mortgage, has equity in that mortgage, and then maybe also has some revolving debt, right? Or maybe has a very small cash balance, right? And so they're looking at, you, you can now bring in um, how much equity approximately one of your customers has on their home, right? And so if you think about a customer that maybe doesn't even understand that there's um, pretty seamless ways for them to be able to access that equity, such as a, a, a HELOC, right? An equity line of credit, for example. So that's a creative way that um, some of the banks are, are working uh, with us and partnering on taking that data around equity, understanding which customers would be uh, would benefit from a home equity line, and then making that offer in a in a in a very elegant way. They're educating them about. Uh, what it means, what that product can do for them, and then they're they're getting really personalized on the the offers that they're delivering out. 
So that, that's a good example of integrating external data sources. So it's not just Absolutely. the data that we have on our customers today. It's how do we integrate that with things that are happening maybe outside of our four walls to be able to help us um, create some of those insights. Now, you talked about an example there, kind of a lending-based example. Are, are, sure. Is that most of the examples, do you think, or are, are, are we also seeing opportunities from, um, you know, more depository oriented accounts or, or, you know, where we've yeah. got transactional data that's leading us to a more insights. Absolutely. We, we've got another organization uh, that we're working, another bank that we're working with actually, that they are looking at the depository base of customers and they're making referrals and suggestions over to the wealth team. This, this particular bank has a wealth management organization. And so they're, they're, they're educating the customer on, Hey, you know, here's here's some options for us to take care of your your financial needs more holistically and put that money to work for you. So it's a very, you know, simple, um, really simple customer journey to deploy. You you have pretty easily access to deposit level data uh, and understanding, you know, who has maybe a recent influx of cash that's just sitting there or who has had a balance that they're not, they're not spending, but it's just sitting in the bank earning, you know, next to nothing in terms of interest rate. And so that example is really thinking about what's the best possible outcome financially uh, that I could deliver to that customer, right? If I think about my mission as a bank or credit union uh, uh, is taking a customer and getting them the best possible scenario of financial health and wellness, right? That example really goes towards that. It benefits the bank and it benefits the customer. So, Well, and you've been talking about financial literacy as a way of improving customer health. How do you use data and insights to, to drive financial health through a, a process like this? Yeah, so so I think it's um, it, it goes into customer journey orchestration. First of all, customer journey mapping before you're doing that, right? And then saying, okay, what uh, can I understand about my uh, my base of customers, right? So example would be, I've got 50,000 customers. I'm going to look at those customers. I'm going to break them down into cohorts. I'm going to look at you know, the, the millennials, the you know, 20 to 25 year olds potentially don't have a home. Um, you don't have much credit. That's one potential journey. And then I've got another journey that, Hey, they have, they're a small business owner. They're in their mid forties. They've got a home plus an investment property, plus an equity line, and they have larger cash balances. That's another scenario, right? So I'm not going to communicate with both of those um, personas the same way, right? So I'm going to start educating uh, my younger uh, cohorts of customers. I'm going to start educating them on financial health, right? What it means to why owning a home is important. I come back to that a lot. Why having um, savings and liquidity, right, matters. Why keeping emergency savings matters. Why having a better uh, credit card rate or a better, you know, a certain type of credit card. A lot of our lenders or a lot of our banks rather um, have good, robust cards businesses. And so they want to help educate those customers on how they can deliver benefits. It's really about sharing knowledge um, and following what what we call educate, engage, and then advise, right? So I'm educating the customer on kind of the different types of financial milestones and financial literacy type of things. 
And then I'm engaging with them, communicating with them based on what they, what they do, right? If they reach out, if they open a piece of content, if they fill out an inquiry, and then I'm giving them some advice on the right product or service based on, based on what, what we've learned through that conversation. So how do they iterate in that process of, uh, I, I want to come back and talk about the, the cohorts in a minute, but um, mm-hmm. what you just said there was, um, you know, educate and engage. And so, so how are the institutions that, that you're seeing um, kind of testing different messages and figuring out what's working and what's not, and how do we tweak this and what works for this cohort yeah. versus another cohort? Yeah. So that's the key, the key word is, is testing. So first of all, having the perspective that actually uh, the bar for making really meaningful progress for most banks is surprisingly pretty low, right? In terms of they haven't really done a great job of communicating uh, in a specific way to to the different cohorts of, of customers, right? They've done a more product first, we have this many products, let's blast these out to our customer base. And we're going to get some of them that say sign up for a new credit card, right? And so it's taking a step back from that and then doing uh, that iteration. So you're running some tests. We have um, one customer that does just a great job at putting together financial newsletters and sort of what's going on, um, just high level economic updates, right? Those types of things. And then they'll tie in um, other you know, products and offerings strategically, but not, not right away, right? They're building value. They're creating value for that customer by giving them educational type information. And then over a period of time, they're, the, the, they're then making a recommendation or a suggestion on a product that could be helpful to them. Are you able to kind of measure and figure out what that timing or cadence should be? Like we know that yeah, oh, we, yeah. you know, we, we pushed this too early, so we, sh- we should have had a few more, uh, more educational yeah. pieces before we went for the sale here. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that that we do that's that's great, and certainly this is not a you know a technology commercial for Total Expert. One of the things that we do really well is we have a lot of data across the customer journey. So if you think about, let's say you have a a two to three or four year even uh, journey for a particular customer, and you have different messaging based on what's happening, um, and then you have different milestones throughout that process. So we can track. Um, very visually, you can track where customers are getting stuck, where they're maybe opting out of information. So you can track opt-outs, you can track engagement, right? You're seeing if they're opening the content, if you're doing SMS, if they're responding um, to texts or emails, right? So you can really look at the data and say, this is working or this is not with some some very basic analysis. You don't even need a extensive analytics team to, to really look at some of the basics. And then you're making tweaks and adjustments based on what the data is telling you. Well, and, and let's then talk about those cohorts a little bit. Um, how, how I know you've seen a range, right? Some organizations yeah. are really good at this, some are not. On a scale of one to 10, what, what do you think the average institution is that you work with? Uh, how sophisticated are they at understanding these different cohorts? So I think... Um, it, it depends on the size of institution, okay? And it's not always the same. We have seen, we've seen seven, $800 million banks that are shockingly fairly sophisticated, right? And we've seen 10 to $20 billion banks that are 
shockingly not very sophisticated at all, right? They've done a lot of M&A work to, to build the customer base. And so um, we, we've seen, I would say as an average, it's certainly below five, if I just had to baseline average it out in terms of sophistication and how good they are at it. And I think a lot of times what has happened is they've made good progress maybe on investing in some analytics or some data. Um, they're getting some insights, but it's actually then activating that data and taking action on those insights. That's where they all fall down. And we see this up and down size and sophistication of institution. They have analytics, even if they have the deep analytics, really the ability to then drive the outcome, meaning change the communication, what's what the person who's responsible for maybe that customer relationship, if there's a personal banker um, or if there's a you know an advisor or a loan officer that has that relationship, how are they then delivering uh, those insights into the hands of those people so they can have the right types of conversations? They're really, really shockingly bad at that, <laughs> that last part. Yeah. You know, my experience is it's you know, certainly well below five. So, some notable um, exceptions to that, but mostly- totally. Yeah, m- most not so good at that. And you know, when I think about what do I want from a CRM tool, but but also a CRM process, right? And and how do I want to improve the retention expansion of that? Uh, it, it's kind of the same thing. If we think about the individual relationship managers within the organization, some are yeah. really good at it, and. In my mind, doing this right means we're just really scaling the best attributes of the best relationship managers. 100% accurate. That is yeah. exactly the right the right way to say that. You know, they, they know how, like kind of what you were just saying, which customers ought to get which message, kind of where they are, where their mind is, they're not ready for that yet and and whatever. Um, and And here's where, you know, external data can also be really helpful. So, so, you know, kind of back to that, you know, where's the average bank today? How much of, uh, how, how many of them are leveraging external data? Because um, that's where we can really get a lot more sophisticated at understanding those cohorts. Because my sample size might not be, you know, large enough to, to help me, but I could leverage a much broader set of data. Yeah, I, I would say that, um, in some capacity, there's maybe half that that we have seen from the um, base of organizations that that we work with. Maybe half are are getting some type of external data, but then it's it's really um, pretty dismal in terms of what they're actually doing with it, right? So even if they're getting it, uh, let's say they have a relationship with the credit bureaus, or they're getting valuation data or other types of profile data that's available. Um, they're not really doing anything meaningful with it in most cases that we see. They've, they've failed to actually have it d- deliver impact, right? And, and so, you know, the the great relationship managers in in banks and organizations are are instinctive about uh, taking care of the customer needs, communication, engagement, follow up, right? All of those things, right? But then, if you think about, okay, how do you take the best possible experience where you know, my best advisor, my best relationship manager, they're, they almost kind of anticipate the needs of the customer, right? They're having conversations, they're thoughtful. Then how do you take that and how do you do that at scale? And as you said, it's really putting what we call intelligent automation. So workflow and process in place that's driven by data 
uh, to then enable maybe the average or below average relationship manager to have that same process. And then organizationally, I have visibility into, are they following the process or are they not? Well, and, and you started in the mortgage side of the business where the products are, yes. you know, fairly homogenous and, um, you know, maybe some of the journeys and some of the pieces were pretty um, predictable. But now as you're expanding and, and working with mm-hmm. different parts of banks and credit unions, you mentioned wealth earlier, um, you start to get into some more, not only sophistication, but some more variability and um, some more- Lots so, of variability. Yeah. So so what are you learning around that? And, and I'm curious- um, how far along are you on the commercial side? Because uh, I think I think we're still in the super early innings of all the things that we've just talked about applying to you know small business customers. Yeah, so so we are definitely early stages on the commercial side. We we have organizations that are doing some really cool things with their small business customers in terms of looking at them um, holistically and saying, "Hey, I want to serve all of their financial needs, uh, not just." their commercial loan, right? Or their treasury, right? So we have some some scenarios where we're really seeing some cool stuff happening there, uh, but it is definitely an area of focus for us so over the next couple of years in thinking about, there's just, as you mentioned, it's super early innings and there's so much uh, that has just yet to be done on the small business side of things. Um, consumers certainly ahead of that, ahead of where they are. Well, and when we think about that complexity and variability, that's really where the opportunity for technology lies, right? We just said that, you know, this is about leveraging the best RMs and the more complex those relationships are, you know, the more opportunity we have to do it right by adding technology. Yeah, I need to have, so we have an offering uh, that we, we have just released called customer intelligence and customer intelligence is essentially our umbrella name. Uh, for external data sources that can help you um, create a more holistic financial profile of every customer, right? So our our vision, and I would say our shared vision with a lot of our, our customers is saying, how do we have the most comprehensive financial profile for every uh, person in business that we service, right? And if I have an extremely robust, comprehensive financial profile, then I can really anticipate needs. Um, I can uh, I can enable my people to have higher quality communication, right, with with them, right. So if you think about, and we talked about right before we we started recording, uh, talked about uh, having deeper relationships and right. stronger relationships. And so if you think about it at a basic level. What's fundamental to having a great relationship, whether it's business or personal, it's really great communication and high quality engagement, right? If you think about it. And I I think it's really the same for um, customers, uh, banks, customers, and whether it's business customer, consumers, they they want high high quality communication, but not annoying. And they want um, engagement that is, you know, that is actually intelligent and thoughtful and not, not just... You're trying to sell me something. Right. No customer wants that. No, well, no customer wants that. You know, we're maybe last thing because you open up another can of worms and maybe we'll get into it next time uh, we have you back. But um, as we talk about these different business lines and the different cohorts and the different needs, I mean, that also makes me think of the different silos inside the organization. So we right. have different managers, different decision makers, different data sets, different 
you know, tools and technology, you know, talk about that challenge and, and how um, organizations can kind of overcome that because you know, the customers don't care about your business lines and your silos. They, they don't, they don't care about how your PL works, right? They, they care about what's important to them. And so the answer JP is ultimately uh, there isn't a immediate quick win way to solve that entirely right? It is an iterative process. And what we have learned, the organizations that I believe are are on the leading edge and really the high performers, they take it bite by bite, right? They're looking at uh, it. And we've seen this change over the last few years to where banks used to really look at 18 to 24 months, big implementation projects to now it's looking at a very narrow slice. Maybe you're picking out one cohort of customers, you're picking out a specific customer journey, and you're just going to get that live and get some impact in the next 90 to 120 days, right? And then once you do that, you do another one. And that has been, and, and that means you're getting the data sources that you need to solve for that specific scenario, that specific uh, customer journey, right? It might be uh, you know, just for one or two types of products or one or two different cohorts, something something very simple that can be accomplished. And then you're building on that success. And that's really what we have seen to be the secret sauce is looking at it from a very iterative, bite-sized approach. Well, I think that's good advice for any form of digital transformation, right? Yeah. Just to, you know, get some small wins and keep building on that. Uh, so maybe last thing before we wrap, what, what advice do you have for institutions that are uh, hearing this conversation thinking, okay, what is that, you know, first bite-sized step that I could take tomorrow? Right. So yeah, first bite-sized step is number one, just make sure you have clarity as an organization uh, on what you want to be focused on, right? Are you focused on your commercial business? Are you focused on both commercial and consumer? Really understand that, right? And then I think the first step is to start looking at your customer journey. It is really about looking at the customer journey and identifying the gaps that are there currently. The fastest way to add growth and uh, create growth for an organization is just to plug the gaps that are there. And meaning there's nobody following up with them from point A to point B, right? And so you can, you can have a lot of progress from just filling in those gaps. And that is literally, it sounds really basic, um, but getting a, a small team in a, in a room with a whiteboard, looking at each of the cohorts and saying, okay, what's the process they go through? What would we like the ideal outcome to be? And what are, what are the, the barriers to, to getting there? And that's, that's the way to, to get started. Well, that's great advice and a lot more to unpack. And so we'll have you back to talk about that next time. But thanks for joining us, Joe. Thank you, JP. Really appreciate it. Right, check them out at TotalExpert.com. If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world. And our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs, custom-tailored for your situation and your team, to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, 
we can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com. There may be nothing higher on the hype curve right now than NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Jason and Amber were at South by Southwest recently, and there were a lot of sessions on NFTs there. But how do we separate the hype from the reality? And what about some of the unknown aspects and the legal aspects, the regulatory aspects of this? Dara Tarkowski, host of the Tech on Reg podcast here on Provoke.fm, gets into that with Lamont Black, professor from DePaul University, to talk about how regulators are going to treat this new asset and what are some of the risks that we need to take into consideration. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. Today's episode, NFTs, or NIFTIs as many casually refer to them, lots of hype and understandably so, particularly because, you know, people sold one of those for over 69 million bucks, and that's a lot. So from art to music to video clips, are NIFTIs the new medium for art distribution and collection, or is this just another fad fraught with legal complications? Let's see. Today we are joined by Professor Lamont Black, Associate Professor in DePaul University's Department of Finance and Real Estate, who also teaches a graduate school course on blockchain, to explore this topic with us. What is this new technology? How is it changing the way we purchase high-value items? And to help me wrap my caveman lawyer brain around it all, welcome to the show, Lamont. Thank you, Dara. It's great to be here. So I think a fair place to start is, Lamont, can you help my listeners understand what is a nifty? Sure. So my guess is many of your listeners have heard about them because they've been in the news uh, quite a bit recently because of some of these big art sales. But uh, I think conceptually, it's helpful to just step back and think about the underlying terms and what they mean. So fungible is a word that means, you know, something that is exchangeable or replaceable with another item. So you could think about maybe like a $20 bill being tradable for another $20 bill. And, it, you know, the user or the owner might be indifferent between those two pieces of paper uh, or some commodity or shares in a company. But uh, and by the way, we're, we're talking about fungibility because NFT stands for non-fungible tokens, that's right. right? That's right. So a non-fungible token is um, a token that is not exchangeable or replaceable. And uh, what's unique about them is that they create a, uh, a, an ownership to some digital asset. And this, I think, is particularly important right now because as we're moving towards a more digital economy and shifting from physical assets to digital assets, there's a lot of interest in how do you establish ownership over a digital asset. And, you know, digital assets would seem to be more fungible in nature. You know, we can copy things and share them. We do that often, you know, day to day with different files on our computers. And so if we want to have some unique ownership to a specific digital asset, how do we create that link? And that's the real innovation of a non-fungible token 
and why people are very interested in owning these tokens and having that ownership stake. So I just want to back up for a second. These digital tokens, these non-fungible digital tokens, they represent, they're supposed to represent ownership of an asset, right? Yes. But in the case of digital art, correct me if I'm wrong, it, the NFT isn't the artwork itself, right? It, it sort of, it's a token that either refers to or, or points to the artwork. But the digital, like the actual image itself, the, the JPEG, the audio file, whatever it may be, it's like somewhere else. That isn't the nifty, right? Yeah, I think that's part of why people are very confused and I think kind of scratch their heads when they hear about non-fungible tokens because we typically think of like with artwork, owning a physical piece of art that you can, you know, put in a museum or hang in your home and it's clear that you are the unique owner of that physical object. But when you start talking about a digital object, which can be copyable or like a JPEG file or something like that, then simply, you know, having that JPEG on your laptop would not be a unique ownership because that same JPEG could exist on someone else's laptop. And so it's really not about the actual digital file. It's more the actual ownership record itself, which is unique. So the one analogy that someone used with me was a baseball card analogy. So in, in, my, in my mind, you know, uh, baseball cards, hundreds of thousands, millions of baseball cards, the same baseball cards are printed all the time. But you might have one with a unique signature. So to me, that signature, that unique token, to me is sort of like the equivalent of a baseball card signature. Am I thinking about that wrong? <laughs> No, I think that's exactly right. And uh, I think that's why, where we're seeing a lot of the action in the non-fungible token space is in sports memorabilia. So uh, NBA Top Shot was actually one of the first examples I heard about uh, from my students. I had a student in one of my undergraduate classes who had bought one of these uh, NFT uh, videos of a, of a slam dunk from a basketball game. And he, you know, through Zoom, was able to, to show it to the rest of us. Um, and so people are interested in having this kind of unique uh, memorabilia. And, and it used to be the physical baseball card, but now like a little video clip. But just like you were saying, it's not the actual clip itself. It's, it's this unique record of ownership, which would be like a, a kind of like a sports signature. And I think what's super interesting about that is how that then relates back to blockchain, because Blockchain is the underlying technology that makes non-fungible tokens work. And a blockchain is basically a ledger of uh, signatures that record some transfer of ownership. And so we're, I think we've come to get used to this idea of signatures as it relates to like transferring uh, Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain. But uh, because, you know, the, the like Bitcoin white paper think refers to signatures in that sort of way. Um, and so here we're kind of thinking about something like an athlete signature that would then signify this is a unique digital asset and this individual has some unique ownership of that asset. So Lamont, you've used the word unique like a lot of times. And 
that I think that's part of what makes my lawyer brain hurt. And I think a lot of people get confused by saying, oh, you have this unique asset, this unique asset. You may have a unique signature, but like the clip isn't unique. The JPEG isn't unique. So it sort of brings me back to the question. Um, you know, I recently listened to an interview that you did for WGN Radio about this very topic. Um, and you you made a statement during that interview that ownership was the name of the game. So if ownership is the name of the game, when you buy an NFT, my goodness, what the heck do you actually own? My legal colleagues and I, we there's five different lawyers will give you five different answers. So what do you think? So, you know, I think... If you think about it from the perspective of blockchain, you can think of it as like a digital wallet and you have this token, this non-fungible token, which uh, is in that wallet. But then I think the question is, well, what is the relationship between that token and this digital asset? And and I think it's it sort of gets into this interesting evolution that we've seen in blockchain where it's transitioned, I think, from just a transfer of value to uh, being able to do additional things on that blockchain. So if you think about like Bitcoin as being a blockchain which simply transfers the value of Bitcoin from one digital wallet to another, well, when we started into the Ethereum sort of era, we've now been exploring all these uh, uh, decentralized applications, smart contracts, and really trying to build different types of architecture on a blockchain. And I think what we're seeing now with these non-fungible tokens is how do you create a record of ownership which um, is unique to the individual? So there's only you know, that digital wallet with that token in that wallet, but it might be attached to a digital asset, which then, you know, could reside elsewhere. So like you're pointing out, the the actual asset doesn't uh, reside in that digital wallet. It is a record of ownership that resides in that wallet. And I think think part of that is because like, from a practical matter, like it's just too big. Right. Like the 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 assets themselves are just too big. And and these platforms were not designed to uh, actually transfer um, those types of files like they could, you know, one billionth of a Bitcoin. Right. Well, I you know, I, I think scale could be an issue there, but I, I think it's actually more so. Um, you know, with a digital asset, it's just much harder to establish uniqueness. So even if you could put a file into a digital wallet, it's it would be very difficult to ensure that that file isn't somehow replicated or shared or distributed to other people. And so, like, when you think about the, the kind of craze around NFTs or NFTs right now, there is a part of that's being driven by scarcity. You know, there's only, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand of any given thing that's For being, now. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> and so, right. So if, if people could just simply start, you know, proliferating these video clips or these JPEGs, then there would be absolutely no value because in, then anyone could have them. And so 
that's actually what I think is interesting about NFTs is it's not the digital object itself. It's this record of ownership, which cannot be duplicated in that same manner. Well, so that brings us to sort of a complicated topic. Um, and I think a complicating factor for digital assets generally, um, physical assets, for example, are not fungible. Even two copies of the same book will have, you know, variations, a typo here or there, the binding is different, the quality of the paper, what have you. By contrast, digital media theoretically can be reproduced identically and infinitely. And it will not vary in any meaningful way, except for maybe the timestamp for when it was created or the IP address on, you know, uh, on which it lives or where it was transferred. Um, so we run it as a result, we sort of run into, and I think this is where a lot of lawyers start their, start getting stuck. There's lots of other areas where lawyers get stuck, but the copyright laws that exist that are on the books of the United States right now have already sort of had a problem with assigning copyright protections to digital assets. Under copyright law, there isn't such a thing as a unique digital media asset that can be bought and sold on a secondary market because media files under copyright law are essentially treated as fungible. There are some exceptions to that, but it's sort of it, it's known as the first sale doctrine. So that's sort of like the first like place where you know, lawyers get a little stuck, um, which goes back to the what do you own part of it, right? Because if you're not even getting sort of like the basic protections, copyright protections under the law for this thing that your promise is unique, right? Your, your promise, it's unique and you're the only one that has this particular token. As of right now, the law doesn't protect the uniqueness of that token. So what are you kind of left with? Yeah, well, I think it's not by coincidence that a lot of this innovation with non-fungible tokens is taking off in the arts because, you know, if you think about the history of art, either uh, visual or audio, you know, we've seen this transition from physical paintings and physical CDs or LPs to these digital files like an mp3 or a jpeg and so then you know i think there has been a bit of a crisis in those uh markets of you know how do we manage copyright uh like i i think this history in, in music of like napster and the distribution of music online and then the implications of that for the music industry were very relevant to what we're seeing now because i think you know, the music industry had to figure out this kind of new form of streaming service so that then, you know, artists can still uh, earn royalties. But those um, assets are sort of managed by a platform like a Spotify or iTunes. And so what I'm hopeful for is that this could lead to some form of kind of democratization of artistic digital art uh, rights and distribution where you don't necessarily need some centralized streaming service. You could have artists that are being compensated for the objects that they're creating. But then I think to your question, then the question is like, if you own one of these non-fungible tokens uh, attached to a, a work of art or, or a piece of music, 
what exactly do you own? Because at this point, in some sense, it's kind of like bragging rights or personal satisfaction. You know, uh, you're just cool, right? Like you're you're just you're just super cool and building your portfolio of nifties, right? That's right. And and so the origin of these nifties goes back to like an Ethereum, like crypto kitties. You know, people being able to create these little like images of cats that are unique. They have you know different <laughs> colors, and you think, well, what's the use or purpose of that? You're but like, because I want it. That's a, that's right, and you feel special. That's right, and um, and so I think that's the big question in this market right now: is how do we transition from it's cool, I enjoy having it, to how do I actually sort of establish value or property rights, and what what rights are then uh, can be given to a, a user or an owner of these different assets. Um, because I think that transition is is still pretty unclear. For sure, I think I think it's definitely unclear. But I want to go back to one uh, issue that you pointed out, um, and that is the democratization of art and giving artists, you know, sort of the ability to monetize their work and um, you know their contributions to the world, which which is important. On the flip side because I'm a lawyer and I can't help myself. On the flip side, it also sort of provides an opportunity or platform for people who want to do bad things to undermine the ability of, you know, the creators and the true owners of, of that art because anyone can create a nifty, right? Any, anyone can create it, even for an image that they don't actually own. They shouldn't do it, but they could create it. So are we, in, in essence, creating an opportunity and a platform to sort of undermine the entire goal of what these nifties were actually created for and supporting artists and, you know, the creation of a platform for, you know, the secure transfer of, you know, digital distribution? Um, in some ways, nifties allow sort of infringers on that art to create art through tokens without knowledge or permission of the original artists. And you won't really know about it until like later, until like after the bad guys made a lot of money off of your original artwork, which is why I know there are so many people who get frustrated with lawyers. It's like, oh, you gotta, you know, you're crapping all over everything and you're stifling innovation and like you're getting in the way of things. But a lot of these are really legitimate questions um, because just as you want to promote the democratization and you know promote innovation in terms of how uh, these tokens can be used in the right way, you also have to sort of think about and account for how the platforms and nifties can really be used in the wrong way, which like was like perfect cue. It's like enter the regulators. Yes, because anyone who thinks that they're just going to sit back and like let this marketplace sort of exist uninterrupted and undisturbed is, I mean, well, I just, they're delusional because that's not going to happen. I think a lot. What do you think about that? Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, I think there's a lot of similarity to what we've seen with the ICO mar market, the initial coin offering. So there was a lot of optimism in the beginning and there was kind of this proliferation of new coins but then people started to realize that there was a lot of fraud 
There was a lot of pump and dump to these uh, new prices. And so with nifties, I think we're going to see similar efforts toward fraud and uh, short-term speculation. And, and, and I think that's, that is often the case with new innovations. You know, it is kind of the wild, wild west. Uh, this is kind of the frontier right now of the blockchain crypto space. But I also think that, um, you know, coming back to your point about kind of, you know, what would prevent someone from just sort of creating some new nifty attached to some piece of art, which would then potentially defraud the original artist, um, you know, in the consumer, right? You're you're defrauding two people. Yes, yes. You know, I think that then goes back to the blockchain technology. Like, I think it's impossible to really understand how this is going to play out unless we really can understand how blockchain as a technology is being applied to this purpose. Because, you know, the original innovation of Bitcoin was how do we, if we're going to try and transfer some form of electronic cash from one digital wallet to another digital wallet, how do we verify and ensure that that electronic cash is actually in that first digital wallet, the the seller of the Bitcoin. And that's what blockchain does. It's a record of previous transactions. You have that entire history, which is immutable, that is transparent. Everyone agrees on and knows this Bitcoin resides in this wallet. And if if this person wants to sell that to this person, we're going to move it from this wallet to the other. And so it it solves that double spend problem. It, It prevents that duplication or fraud or or counterfeit in the the digital space. And so I think that's really what is happening with nifties, um, which would be these these tokens, non-fungible tokens residing in a digital wallet. And so if you are like a consumer of nifties and you're going to buy one of these, then I do think there has to be a a certain level of financial literacy almost to, to know that, what it is you're buying and to ensure that this uh, wallet that it is coming out of is the the actual owner of that nifty, not some sort of um, uh, substitute or manufactured uh, alternative. So if we can get to a place where that record is kind of verifiable in the blockchain and everyone knows what's a real nifty and what's a fake nifty, then I think the power of blockchain will really shine and, and I think these transfers of ownership will be legitimate. Well, doesn't that sort of, I mean, I, this is an analogy to the same sort of uh, stressors and oversight and questions that many of the initial, uh, you know, uh, platforms, you know, the the uh, cryptocurrency platforms, Coinbase, Kraken, you know, wh- whoever it was, the questions that they were being asked and what sort of responsibility those platforms, and to me, the same would hold true for any platform um, that's going to provide an online marketplace for uh, NFT sales or purchases, um, to be subject to sort of like consumer safety regulations like any other sort of e-commerce platform, right? There's there's not a scenario in our environment, in our regulatory environment, where you just get to throw a platform up there and let people do what they do. 
that doesn't like that does i mean god bless america and the freedom of contract but like that doesn't actually exist right you're going to provide a platform and a marketplace for buyers and sellers particularly unsophisticated consumers there is going to be a level of uh, protection that you are going to be expected to provide so where does that responsibility lie? Is it always going to be the end consumer? Does that responsibility lie with the platform? What are the representations and warranties of the sellers? And then what are the regulators, whoever they may be? And by the way, we don't even know which regulator is ultimately going to take ownership over this platform because no one can decide whether or not is it is it personal property? Is it a commodity? Is it a security? In some situations, it may be all of the above. We don't know because it all depends on the, I'm going to use your word, unique nature of the transactions, right? Yes, I totally agree that, you know, we, there has to be a role for regulation, um, just like we saw with the ICO markets, you know, defining what is a utility token, what's a security token, what falls under, you know, these laws, what falls under other laws. And so I think we're going to see that same evolution in the nifty space. Um, but I also, what I find interesting about it is, you know, again, coming back to blockchain technology, it allows for this decentralization. And, you know, obviously exchanges have to be regulated and, and in particular, because many people are buying these nifties as a form of digital asset under the, the goal of price appreciation, earning a capital gain, turning around and selling it later, that starts to sound an awful lot like a security. And so, uh, you know, I do think the Can SEC... Can we say Howey test? Yeah, that's let, right. Let, let, you know, let, let's talk about the Howey test. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the regulators are not going to just turn a blind eye to that. Uh, when these things become traded like uh, securities for investment purposes. But I also think like if you look at like the cryptocurrency exchanges and the, the diversity that we see there, you know, there are sort of centralized exchanges that uh, where you can buy and sell crypto, but the exchange itself owns the private key to that digital wallet. But there are also decentralized exchanges where the, the actual owner owns the, the private key. And so I do think that NIFTs are a shift even more towards this type of decentralization of ownership where we can have, you know, rather than large, uh, you know, conglomerates owning artwork or selling rights to that artwork, you know, that, that this is a, a way in which some of that can be decentralized and distributed. And so I view it as, you know, a, a next step in this evolution of, you know, not just doing money online, but if you think about like ICOs, how do you do crowdfunding online? And now it's like, how do you uh, decentralize ownership online. And I, I think there's a lot of potential for moving that direction. Well, I think it's important for listeners, regardless of where you may sit in the nifty ecosystem, a buyer, a seller, a speculator, someone who wants to invest, someone who wants to commoditize these assets. You know, I think it's important to, as you, you know, as you dip your toe, think about the nature of the transactions that you want to be entering into and think really hard to yourself, like the CFTC has come out and said that they're going to put together 
um, you know, a very holistic framework for digital assets by 2024. Um, and there can be no, right, there's no question that NFTs are digital assets. But also remember, you know, if what you're doing is is pooling these assets together and trying to turn a profit and you do want to speculate on the market, be careful that you're not, you know, accidentally stumbling upon a secure an unregulated securities transaction or or running afoul of the, you know, securities laws. And I hate to even say this, but you know, I my show is on provoke.fm and we have a lot of financial services listeners. There is sort of this this issue out there that some lawyers are talking about, but not a lot of finance folks are talking about. And that's sort of the notion that NIFTIs could, could be viewed by regulators as substitutes for value. And that brings up questions about the Bank Secrecy Act. That's literally the subject of a whole other episode. So maybe we'll have you back uh, with, with someone to talk about that. But then we've got to start uh, talking about, you know, money transmission, legal compliance, and like the rest of crypto that thought it was going to, you know, in, in its perfect world was going to exist without regulatory oversight. Ten years later, we see that that's certainly not the case. Um, and I think the same will be true for nifties, although as we were discussing before we started recording, I hope it's less than a decade before, you know, before we can figure that out. So uh, last last question of the episode, and then you know our time's going to come to a conclusion. But Lamont, is this a bubble or is this the future? So Dara, I think it's both. Uh, maybe that's not. Oh, that a fair was such a thing. lawyer answer. <laughs> <gasps> that was such a lawyer answer. I can't. I don't know if to be annoyed or proud. Yeah, maybe we're more similar than we think. Um, <laughs> So, you know, it's currently in a bubble. I don't think there's any question about that. You know, just the, the prices that we're seeing, you know, the, uh, the millions of dollars that people are paying for artwork or even some of these uh, video clips. So, you know, I think it's very speculative right now. It's very frothy. And, and I think that's going to just have to play itself out. But I think we've seen these episodes in other forms of crypto or digital assets as well. You know, Bitcoin has gone through a number of these cycles. And every time it crashes, people say, well, that's the end of Bitcoin. And, you know, um, that proves that, Bit yeah, that Bitcoin had no value. <laughs> and then it comes back. And so I think we're going to. And then some. Yeah, right? and then exactly. Some. And so I think we're going to see a crash in the, the NFT space. I think, you know. There's a good chance that we see like an NFT winter uh, or a nifty winter. Oh, maybe you, I'm going to coin that. You've heard it here. Um, because That's we, right. We, you heard it from Lamont Black on the Tech on Reg <laughs> podcast, a nifty winter. Yeah. I mean, we saw the crypto winter before the uh, resurgence that we've seen recently. So I, I'm a, a tech enthusiast. I think you are too. And I think everybody is still kind of scratching their heads saying, okay, well, what, what, with a nifty, what do I actually own? And, you know, is this just simply cool or is it somehow some psychological value? But I think over time, we're going to see this play out as a, a, a new and interesting way of recording ownership. And so far, I think these applications to, you know, digital works of art are, are super interesting. But I think about like, as this plays out into other types of assets and other types of 
ownership, you know, that's part of where blockchain applications are starting to go, you know, establishing ownership, establishing ownership rights, whether that's a digital asset or a physical asset, you know, the internet of things, if we can start to really come to agreement on who owns what and how that's recorded, then I think there's a lot of applications that go well beyond what we're seeing today. I would have to wholeheartedly agree with you. Lamont, thank you so much for joining us today. Bye, everyone. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.